0: be good
1: <laughs> well, Hello there friends and strangers. This is Andrew and you're listening to the Monkey Tooth podcast. I'm here with my wife Tiffany and our little dog Pele, and we're uh, we're in Larkspur, California, which is just north of San Francisco. Very soon, we'll be back on the road, traveling on our way to South America. If this is your first time coming to this podcast and you want to learn more about us and what we're up to, uh, there are many opportunities to do so. Just go to our website mtp.dog, M is in monkey, T is in tooth, P is in podcast.dog. And uh, you can learn all about us um, I've got a fantastic guest today. This is the last of my Bombay Beach BNLA interviews. I did three of them on my very last day there. Um, this guy Uva h Martin. what a character I'm so um, I'm very grateful to uh, a number of people for for just even having the opportunity to meet a guy like Uva. It all kind of starts with Chris Ryan, <laughs> amazingly. Um, he introduced me to so many people, not the least of whom was Tao Ruspoli. Uh, and through Tao, I ended up at the Biennale um, working uh, several weeks before. And uh, yeah, just got exposed to all these great, um, great people. And Uva is one of them. There's so much about Uva. Uh, we talked for like an hour and a half. Um, so I don't really want to even go into how much... What a cool guy I think he is and what he's about, but suffice it to say he's a journalist, um, and a documentarian, and a thoughtful guy who uh, has a lot to say and a lot of fantastic information. Uh, there are links to his website on our website, uh, on his little, um, I don't know what, to, what you even call it, his little page on our, on our website. Anyhow, it's great. Uh, landrushproject.com is a great place to learn more about Uva and find out what he and his wife, Frauke, are up to. Um, and Uva mentioned to me that we should have, um, since we use music on this podcast, that we should use his favorite artist, Vera Sola, who plays in Bombay Beach all the time. Uh, it's a lady named Danielle Aykroyd. She is an incredible singer, a great musician, and was kind enough to let me uh, use her music. In this podcast, uh, I put links up to her songs and to her website. Um, she tours all over the world. So if you're interested in seeing her, check out her site and see where she's playing. Maybe you can go see her. I highly, highly suggest it. But at the very least, buy her music because it's fantastic. All right. Um, yeah, I don't want to talk too long here because it's kind of a long interview. Uva uh, had a lot to say and had a lot of questions for him. Um, oh, yeah, there was also. Uh, We were sitting on Uva's front porch, so there's like a little bit of food and tea and stuff. We're just kind of hanging out, and his sweet wife just like was so hospitable, and I couldn't turn down the the food and the drink, and I didn't want to hit stop because I had other things to do. So we just recorded right through it, didn't even edit most of it out, just left it in there. But uh, what you're not going to hear from, which is a little bit unfortunate, is um, someone who was sitting there with us, a lady named Mary Beggio, She was a volunteer at the uh, Biennale and was was present for this interview. And I don't know, she's just like a super cool human being, and I'm glad she was there. It was kind of like calming and uh, interesting just to have her around. So I'll put a link up to her uh, social media as well if you're interested. You can check out Mary. She drives a really, really, really cool scour like Swiss Army vehicle. It's worth checking out. Okay. That's enough of me. Thank you, everybody. Um, I feel so grateful. Tiffany feels so grateful that we have listeners around the world and uh, throughout the States who who like this show. Um, It's great. It's very encouraging that you're out there. If you want to tell us what you think about the show, feel free to send me an email, mtp.dog forward slash contact. Okay. This is it. I'm signing off right now. I hope you have a great time. Hope you're doing fun and interesting things. Until next time, here is Uva H Martin. Uva, what's your last name?
2: Martin M A R T A
1: N. Oh, and I thought that was gonna be way more difficult.
2: <laughs> mm. The it's a, it's a difficult part is the front. Yeah. Uwe. You got that U W E, and then it's like H, dot Martin.
1: H. What's the H stand for?
2: Well, for my middle name, that I never tell anybody. Ever? Um, My wife found it out after like five years.
1: Whoa. Mm -hmm. It's that good or that bad?
2: Well, make of it whatever you want. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, no, the reason I have that is because there's another German uh, photographer, Mm -hmm. and his name is also Uwe Martin. And so when, and he's, Uwe Martin's the older guy. And so when I came into, into... Photography. Um, I started to. Um, people wouldn't would always say like, "Oh, you're Uwe You're not Uwe Martin, right?" It's like when when I came there and said like, "Oh no, that's not you." And I'm like, oh, okay. "Yeah, well." So I had to put this middle name in. I got a few. I could I could have gotten a lot of jobs. Because people called me, they would have, me, have just like, hired you. Yeah, magazines called me and said, "Like, hey, can we do this? Uh, can we? Uh, can you shoot for us? You did this amazing job for us, like last year or so, something." Like, should I? should I just show up? <laughs> yeah, or shouldn't I? Yeah, I always gave it to him. So,
1: well, if you're out there listening, Uva Martin, you owe the real Uva Martin, Uva H, a debt of gratitude. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure he's a listener. I'll yeah, and he's
2: like, Uwe Martin's the older one, and I'm the, yeah. the younger one. So
1: Yeah, Johnny come lately. Is that is that a phrase in German? Johnny come lately? No. Do you know what it means? Yeah. yeah. Just showing up yeah. late on the scene. Which it right. translates, at least. Right. Okay, man. Uh, so I am, just to give you a little bit of context, listener, sitting with Uwe Martin at his home in Bombay Beach on the Salton Sea. And we have uh, a li- very quiet guest with us. So over there grinning in the corner, Mary Beggio, sweet Mary Beggio. Um, We've just completed a crazy project, the Bombay Beach Biennale. We've all worked very, very hard. Everybody seems a little bit more subdued and relaxed today than I've seen everyone in weeks, (laughs) weeks and weeks of effort. But uh, Uva, you've been here for a while. You're a property owner here um, and you came out, how many years ago did you first come out? about four years ago four years yeah Uh, i want to get to why and what you're doing and what you're up to but uh can you just tell me or tell the listener a little about your property and what this is and what what you're up to on this property
2: right so i found this beautiful property in bombay beach um and it's known now as the orange house because it's the only orange house in bombay beach and um uh, it's like one of the few houses that is actually a house house yes. mostly there are trailers around here and um i've been seeing it uh, over the years always standing there and it had this magical feeling to me it's like oh this is cool like nobody lived there and so i started inquiring and asking people about this house and um one day suddenly um, i saw people walking in here um and then i saw like a, a, a sales sign up and so i I hit up the the um how do you call it realtor yeah. and said like hey can I can I have a look and so I had a look inside and and what was amazing about this place is when I walked in, um it looked as if the former owner just had left for lunch. Yeah. So you still had like the newspapers laying around, you had like cigarette butts there, you have like the pyjama on the bed, you had uh I don't know, like like the soap laying in the in the little like next to it, next to it like dissolved a little bit. Uh, no, everything dusty and covered in dust because a former owner had died about ten years earlier. Wow. But the most significant thing that you that I realized, like when I walked into the space or recognized when I walked into the space, was the smell because the food was still in the fridge, and so I think it was living again. Mm -hmm. right I mean it has this this life of its own and um, and then I wandered through the space and um, I totally fell in love with the place I mean I was really like it was in bad shape but it was in good shape so it was like all the original artists in there we basically I I bought it together with with my friend John uh, Hernandez and um, basically we kept it Except exactly how, how 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 we found it. We just like clean it up and put tiles in instead of the carpet. Yeah. But um, but build build it up like this authentic house. lot yeah. Of people here now coming in, the artists very often they take a trailer and then they make their little dreamy designed project and. It looks stunning. I mean it's absolutely amazing a lot of the places. But I think this is one of the few houses in Bombay Beach of anybody who took it over after the original owners have been gone. Uh that that is kept in in its spirit and, and, and how it used to be. And so it's like this little time capsule, it's like absolutely bad taste, nineteen sixties, seventies. And that makes it so beautiful.
1: Yeah. It's. I walked in briefly just to fill up Pele's water bowl, and I was like, "Wow, this is." The very first thought was time capsule. (laughs) Like this, just just dipped in formaldehyde and preserved perfectly but so right and and you have
2: like like one thing I want to say about that like when I when I walked in there and I was like ah do I really buy that and and then I saw this there's a a cowgirl watch there it's like this big busty blonde girl with like (laughs) a naked butt and then it says like bareback riders made for cowboys and I mean that's that's something I mean it's so so terribly sexist that today you wouldn't find something like that anymore i mean no. you can't do it anymore you, yeah. and but but here it's like part of this place and yeah. it speaks of the time and so i really love that mm. that that thing that is absolutely not correct but yes. that is so wonderful when you walk in there and actually um so so all this original stuff is still there like when you open like now when you when you open like the drawer you find the magazines from like you f- you find the, the 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 Gazette here of the Salton Sea from from back in the eighties. Wow. And so, so it's all there. It's like a lot of little treasures that are hidden somewhere in the place. And That's they're intentionally kept there. Yeah.
1: And do you, you rent this as a Airbnb when yeah. you're not here? Yeah. And how often are you not here? Seems like you're here a lot. You've been here longer than I've been here.
2: Right. So uh, I've I've uh, like i totally fall in love with this place i we can speak about that in a little bit but um but i'm i spend here about like three or four months every year because i'm working on a larger documentary about this place and um so when i'm not here and and when i'm here i'm renting either the front part of the house that's this original thing and then the other thing is there's a little small how do you call it like attic or like something added to the building like a other part, mm-hmm. it used to be where the guy had his uh, washer and dryer, and I turned it into a small second apartment. And the very interesting thing is that the guy who owned this place before has a big appre- or had a big appreciation for beautiful women, mm-hmm. as most of us do. Yeah. Um, and uh, then, and he uh, had a big collection of like really interesting stuff. Some of it pretty manly and gross and, yeah. but then he had this amazing collection of like cutouts from old playboys and esquires with the Vargas girls oh, wow. and so I turned the back part of this house into a, in a second uh, Airbnb that is called the Vargas paradise so I framed all those Really oh, wow. wonderful art into golden frames, and it's like this little paradise by itself.
1: Oh, we'll be taking photos soon if that's okay with you. <laughs> oh yeah,
2: it's absolutely okay. It's nobody in there to die. Again. Great. So yeah,
1: that's cool. I love the. I mean, there are people certainly trying to preserve some of the elements here and working with the elements, and but that your impulse to like really preserve it and almost amplify that kind of grungy old thing is a it's a cool impulse, and I think. And it's part of the charm of this place is that there is so much of that here, and it's almost always predicated by someone dying. I mean, there's so many properties around here where the the owner died, and just nothing happened to their house for 15 years, 20 years, and their neighbors remember them like, "Oh yeah, he was a preacher, he was a whatever, you know," and then just died, and no one wanted it, so just sat there in that state. Do you know how this person died? Or what, what happened? No,
2: I don't I don't know. I I mean now with all the art I found of him and and he doesn't only had the selection of women, but he also painted them and like oh, wow. all kinds of things. So probably next year I'm trying to if if I'm able to to pull it together like try to figure out a little bit more about him and would Mm -hmm. really love to do an exhibition in its honor because he did some really good like um how you call it like spray paintings like 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 uh, airbrush stuff yeah so it's like i I can show you a few of his pictures but next next year i would really love to do a little exhibition with with his stuff to pay honor to to this guy who was here, right? And I mean, even like the kitchen, like the 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 wallpaper in the kitchen, it's like the original stuff. So it's like it's it's faded down over the years, but it's absolutely, yeah, absolutely wonderful. Yeah,
1: it's definitely um, it's a bygone era of yeah. art that you know maybe there's somebody still doing it in Florida or something, but for the most part, right, it's not around.
2: No, and that's that's yeah, and it's uh, and I like spaces like like that and i'm i'm not i'm not a creative in a way that like an architect or like a lot of the people here have like a great taste and can create something from themselves i'm more a documentary person Mm -hmm. so um so for for me like imagining a space like many people can do that i'm not good in it but i'm i'm pretty good in like looking at things and then getting the essence of it and keeping that yeah and so i think that is what what we did here yeah so basically like if you would be like a film team want to do like a 1960s show you could just go in here and you don't even have to prep any i mean you put some lights and yeah you're good to roll don't worry about
1: dressing the set it's ready to yeah that so the docu this is a good segue into your your efforts as a documentarian because i think it is that that makes you a good amplifier like a documentarian is you know for sure just meant to be a a reflection or allow something to shine but you know a lot of good journalists and documentarians really do amplify a person's whatever it is it's their art it's their philosophy whatever it is that they do i'm assuming you've come to do that but it's you're doing more than just the people and the and the place itself you've got an environmental um effort that you're working on and uh I, I've, it's so funny. I've known you for five weeks, and I'd right away I wanted to interview you. So I've almost avoided getting to know you too well <laughs> so that I could talk to you and learn it all for the first time. So this is honestly the first time I'm getting a chance to really dig into what it is that you do. So I don't know where you want to start. And can I, where, where do I start? Yeah, mm-hmm. what do you do? I, <laughs> <laughs> what do, I, do? I, I wish I
2: would know. I found myself a new world, I sailed
0: around its ring. I crown myself its king. And I made myself religious, carved Christ in ivory, and I deemed an airtight Sunday to justify myself. All
2: um, basically, my wife and I, um, we work as a team together for the last. Um, Dozen years, over a dozen years, twelve years now, we um, are documenting global agriculture in all its different forms. And the reason for that is that everybody in our societies, in Western societies, where we, where normal normal people like yes people left out, but most people take food for granted, right? And so, I mean, it's in the grocery store there. We don't really have food shortages and things like that. And yet, um, most people don't realize how fragile our food systems are and how much impact the way we produce food and produce clothing, like cotton, for example, um, and fuel on the field and so on. How much our agricultural systems are threatening the very existence of themselves and nature and of our societies. Mm -hmm. Because if we look at it, um, there's a a great um, Jonathan Foley, um, he's now with Project Drawdown, he used to be uh, at the California Academy of Science, he uh, at one time said um, that agriculture is the most significant thing that we together as human beings collectively are doing to the world. And that is true. It's one of the main drivers of climate change. It uses like 70 to 80% of all the water that humans use. It depletes water systems. It creates dead zones in, in oceans. Um, it depletes the soil. We lost like Massive amounts of topsoil since um, we we are using agricultural systems, and always uh, that happened. And so many societies failed because their agricultural systems failed. I mean, they 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 were later overrun by wars and stuff like that. But very often, a reason, uh, one one thing that played into that is that the agricultural system didn't work well, and so so they didn't have the over sex, over production that they needed to run a big army and send people out and stuff like that and run all the systems and so a lot of societies failed and um, in in history and then had to move on because their agricultural systems their water system uh, went wrong their soils dried up or uh, salinated or whatever so um, when when, and, and, and we are now in a moment in time because of people are everywhere where all of these things that over history happened in many different locations around the world and brought societies down are happening simultaneously all around the world and so the the question is where will we go when our groundwater is depleted, when the soil is gone, when the biodiversity is reduced, and so on and so forth. So I think that agriculture is really collectively the most influential thing that human beings are doing to the planet. And it's the largest industry, right? I mean, yeah. no other industry employs so many people like agriculture. But then yet, if you look at, at journalism, where, I, where I'm from, I'm journalist, I'm maybe
0: artist, I don't know.
2: Um, but But I'm coming from journalism, and and journalism very often like focuses on the daily news and focuses on the story of migration movements or something like that oh there's people at the border now or oh people are coming over the the mediterranean sea what do we do right and so but 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 a lot of these are grounded in the longer term effect uh, in the longer term reasons like climate change and like agricultural system failure and all of these things and i'm i have always been interested in documenting the foundational reasons behind the things that later lead to the news i am not interested in the news i mean not interested in the news to document it myself right
1: that's you seem like kind of a long game person like you're thinking long term and you're in the future and long term in the past the fact that you've, you've compared to agricultural systems throughout time that have led to societal collapse is uh, it's telling of what kind of what kind of guy you are but the the other day i saw a uh, a dead animal uh here on the beach that was surrounded by flies and it was the most untenable situation for most of those flies most of them aren't going to make it that of an animals just slowly becoming less and less they keep making more and more flies eventually they have to find another dead animal. Most of those flies aren't going to make it. They're not going to have enough food. And it, it made me, I just felt the impact of that. And I saw that for what it is. We are those flies. And this, this planet, is it living as it is, is just a series of things that have died, that we're living off of. Everything is just a kind of sort of constant circle of death and eating and pooping and death and eating and pooping uh, and rebirth somewhere in the middle of all that. Are you, you know, looking at those systems failing and all this craziness and madness? And I'm sure you see people trying to do the most efficient thing and talking about cost benefit analysis and economy of scale. Are you fucking terrified or angry or hopeful? Like, what? How do you feel yes. when you look at all this? <laughs> yes, yeah. So it's, uh, the answers are
2: very yes, yes. I'm terrified. Yes, I'm angry. And yes, I'm hopeful.
1: Mm. Um, so who, who's let me get to the hopeful? Who's doing it right? Do you see a good example anywhere? And, and and I know that there's no silver bullet, but do you see someone who's like gathering best practices and putting them to use to their geographical area? Or what, there's, this project,
2: you know? there's projects around the world. I mean, amazing um, projects that try to do things better, and sometimes it actually. Seems to be working for a certain time, or it it works, and and then then you think like oh you have solved that problem, then you figure out no you created like three others. Mm. I I mean yeah I'm I'm hopeful because I think that by now we have a lot of the knowledge that we need to make things better. The question is, well we realize early enough and turn back and say like, okay, we might not make the profit this year and next year and in five years, but a generation from now they can still live. Mm. And that that has to do, I, and I think, like as bad as like all the disasters are that we are seeing right now, it at least makes people realize that like even if you don't like the word climate change, which seems to be a thing in the U.S., which is like completely ridiculous, but uh, but uh, that but everybody agrees that the climate is changing, right? Even mm. if you speak to like some hardcore conservative farmers um, that would always vote for a Republican Party, which is probably the most dangerous organization we have in the world right now. Um, they would still, they would, when when I tell them, like, or, or when we're talking and say, like, hey, how do you experience climate change? And you're like, oh, there's no climate change. Bullshit It's like, fake and whatever. But when you ask them, like, hey, like, how is how is it different now? And have have you seen any, like, change in, in weather patterns and in water and stuff? And then they tell you yeah. a lot of things. <laughs> And so everybody agrees that or nearly everybody agrees that the climate is changing. But they probably don't want to acknowledge yet that it's that lifestyle that we all live. Sure. And it's so difficult. I mean it's like the same for me. Like for I'm I'm very aware that my my way of living with like all these flights between different sure. places and like going around the world to document all that stuff. Is adding to the problem.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask about that. That was one of my biggest troubles working in environmental issues was sort of digesting my own hypocrisy. Right. You know, and it, it drove me mad. I was driving around in a vehicle powered by vegetable oil and trying to count my carbon footprint. And, it, and at every turn, any given decision, you, you know, you buy scotch. Like, oh, that's. I, I lived in Tennessee. There's no scotch being made in Tennessee. That ain't local. You know, so every little given thing that you do is a violation of some principle of of environmental stability <clears throat> unless you live in a, a cave that grows mushrooms and you know so what how do you how do you deal with that you just try to tell the story and and do the best you can or what how do you feel about all that
2: well I think I'm really unperfect, like pretty much everybody else mm-hmm. and I think it doesn't make sense to try to be this holy figure, right? I'm not like Mother Therese or any any like monk in a cave. I have my flaws and stuff like that. And I think like that so I think one of the main problems we have right now is that our corporations and politicians were able to make people think that their individual choice is the most important thing Mm -hmm. and through that we consume more and more and more right because you think like oh cool now i buy like organic this or i buy local that and um not realizing that it just means before because you feel better about it you you might even use more Mm -hmm. um of the same stuff for example like everybody was like really like like Environmental movement liked the idea of, um, of, um, sorry, of fuels made plant based fuels. Right. Everybody thought, wow, that's a great idea. And now it, we figure out that, like, if you do it from corn and you switch corn fields to, uh, to, to a fuel production so system, it's like, first of all, it's like really inefficient. I mean, the, 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 the um, the
1: amount of the yields are poor. The or, yields yeah. are
2: poor of, of like energy. So yeah. it's like a really stupid system that is only that, that, that doesn't do any good. And so I think we, we are always trying and failing, but mm-hmm. maybe we are failing upwards. And I hope so. <laughs> I don't know. And 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 but but that is that is like when, when it gets back to that I think the, the main problem is this thought that you as an individual are responsible for it. You as an individual often don't have the choice. I think what we need is really policy changes so that you don't get a single-use plastic thing anymore. It doesn't make any sense to wrap an avocado or anything like that or like an orange in plastic. There is no reason for it. But if you go to a shop and everything is wrapped in plastic, then it makes it nearly impossible to not have that plastic yeah. and, and so and so I think that is a, that is a more important part and, and I do m- we do our part like my wife and I we do our part in trying to to start discussions about that. that is what we what we can politically do and here comes my wife. Hello, hello. come in. <laughs> Welcome. That's Frauke. Um, hello <laughs> Stay <low. laughs> And uh, she brings us tea, so uh, Very nice. that, that we don't try and I have and
0: some food too. It just means: Do we want to continue the interview, or make a short break for having some? Light no, we yeah. we we
2: just continue and and have it Yeah, it's thing. fine. It's, it's not live, right?
1: It's a podcast. It's <laughs> no one cares.
2: Good, perfect.
0: That is oh, so too. nice of you. Thank How you, you is so much. Lovely,
2: perfect. Can thing? Thing? Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Hot tea, black tea.
1: Sure, sure, good. sure. Thank you. Sorry for interrupting. No, no, no. Thing,
2: But that's like that's how how we work, right? No, it's
1: it's yeah. fine, man. It's like totally great. Working,
2: living, it all goes yeah. into, together.
1: I never apologize to me for bringing food and drink into the middle of anything. It's perfect. Yeah. yeah. Cheers. Thank you. Yeah. Mm, good strong tea.
2: Yeah, so I mean, I mean, it's like it's 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 obviously that it's it's like like as a person living in the Western world or like the the um, minority world of uh, of rich wealthy countries, obviously, um, our our footprint on the planet is is very defined and clear, and I, I don't see. I don't see a way of making it much better and still doing the work, right? I mean, I could only be like getting into the local community and then, or maybe live in a cave or something like that. But I think it's just not practical.
1: Yeah, the individual responsibility. I mean, you can't completely dismiss it. Of course, we all have our choices to make and should be more conscious of what we do. But it's, uh, you know, I'm sure you've been reading these stories about the failure of the recycling system worldwide. It's just kind of a, a, it's a massive breakdown of what a system we all hoped would have been a great solution. <laughs> we, all, we all felt great when our trash bag was light and very little went into the trash and we've got a compost pile and things went into the recycling and now recycling is screwed. I mean, it's just not tenable because people just continue to use single use. The problem isn't that the recycling doesn't work. The problem is the premise itself, that things need to be pa- packaged in plastic in the first place that there is single-use stuff and such uh, great pro- pro- proliferation and that there are so many um, like just things that are designed to be obsolete in, a, in the near future. That That's the actual problem. But it, it's all kind of, to me, it seems like it's a symptom of that fly-on-corpse mentality. <laughs> you just have to get it in while you can and hope that another corpse pops up. Whereas in this case... Our, our next corpse, quote unquote, is a technological development. We've always kind of looked to technology. When I worked in renewable fuels, the very fuels you were mentioning, it, we would, we hoped, okay, we're going to do this. will be a stopgap between now and when hydrogen fuels kick in. And uh, I, one of my coworkers said, listen, man, hydrogen fuel is the, uh, it's the fuel of the f- future, and it always will be. <laughs> You know, because it's just not it's there, there's just this hope that technology is going to fix it. Yeah. And I think relying on the problem to become the solution is a flawed way of thinking. So when I, again, I want to get back to you feeling hopeful, <laughs> we yeah. kind of we swung around it because it for me, it's hard to genuinely believe in something hopeful other than like hopefully we'll just be kinder to one another as we all slowly slide into the abyss. Or maybe somewhat more quickly slide into the abyss that we'll at least figure out a way to get along on the way down <laughs> that's my hope and I, and I know that's not the most hopeful thing, but um it doesn't seem to me like we've got a uh, a mechanism for dealing with this like we have to grow, we have to make a better one we're we're just programmed in this deep way to to take our tools, our weird little ape hands and make tools that 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 capitalize on on Materials, you know. So, where where are we going? You, Uva, where's it all going? How do I you? I have no clue. If uh, I would
2: be, I would have a Nobel <laughs> Prize by now. You know, I don't. Nobody ever suggested that I get one. But you're, you know, you're
1: you're out gathering the information. You're doing. You're digging. You're looking at the data. Yeah. Um, maybe start by telling me about your specific project here. Right. Like
2: let, let me let me just like to the hopeful thing. Yeah, like, sure. like 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 return to that for a second. So, I mean. Yes, we are sliding to that, and, and things are not very positive in the moment. But, I mean, if we look at how air quality was in our societies, like back in the 50s and 70s sure. and so on, we did a great deal to save that. We stopped, basically, the ozone hole was it the ozone how, how do you call it ozone, yeah. the, 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 the hole in the sky right that mm-hmm. like do you remember like um uh highlander 2 you know where he is like <laughs> like where where the world where he created then this system of like this red sky to protect us from the the race because the hole in the sky was All too right. big and that was like the fear that we had like back in the 80s right and there, there was this, this thing, and, and there was a solution, and we knew it, right? We knew the solution is don't don't put that bad stuff in, like, refrigerators and stuff like that. And we made a law, and bang, it's gone, and mm-hmm. now it's slowly getting back. And so we, 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 self, we solved that problem. And when it comes to fossil fuels, we know what we have to do. Right, and I think there is like uh, one of the projects I really like, um, it's called Project Drawdown and they have a list of like, I think it's a hundred most important things you could do to reduce carbon emissions and it would make a significant, it, it would create a significant reduction. Would it solve all our problems? No, for sure not. Right. But one at a time. We do. And I, I'm very wary of, I, I don't like religious things, like when you have like people either, be, either believing in, I don't know, God will save us. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, then suddenly you're saved with all your problems, right? But the same kind of like religious thinking goes into veganism, for example. Like, right. oh, if we don't eat animals anymore, then we will be saving the planet. That's the most important thing. Well, it's not. It's like great to reduce eating animals. And there's always this moral discussion that you can have. Sure. Specifics, uh, um, um, like how can you eat other species and stuff like that. The moral aspect is one, but environmentally, sure. it is one very important step to reduce it, but it is not the solution. Right. And, and so that I don't think there is a silver bullet, but I'm pretty positive that there are we already know a lot of things that we maybe not see all the different implications that will come later from it but we know that if we reduce fossil fuels it will be much better we know that if we would be um stopping to or or reducing subsidies into unsustainable systems um, and making industries Pay for the damage that they do, that they by themselves, by the power of money, are forced to do it. Yeah. So basically, if you would just like change a few things, for example, would say to car companies, okay, we have like this five cl- classes of cars, or however many, and whoever's a technology leader in that category, this technology, two years later, is the only car you can still buy. That means that say, GM, Motor, General Motors, does a car that you, in this class uses like gets like 40 miles to the gallon. Then two years later, no car can be sold anymore that doesn't get 40 to the gallon. Mm-hmm. Finish, end of time. Everybody, and they would have in that time, they have a competitive advantage. advantage and so we just have to do it. I mean, there, there are things that you can do and force companies to do, that, th- and, and when it comes to single-use plastic, just like, we just have to ban it. I mean, the, like, uh, South Korea just banned uh, coffee-to-go cups. Wow, coffee-to-go, right? It's like, it's, it's, I mean, it's like, it's like so ridiculous to buy, like, a cup and a, a plastic lid to just, like, in the shop, instead of, like, washing up your fucking dishes. I mean, you, you even get that, like, like what I'm, and, and it's, it's okay when you go travel, maybe, but even when you sit down and you go to, like, starbucks the first thing they give you even when you sit down there is like a one-time use thing there should be a penalty on it make it like don't ban it completely but pay five dollars for it five dollars for every single i don't know plastic cup and and then the problem would be solved immediately and that wouldn't mean that we save the world and everything but we know a lot of the things we have to
1: do right you have to take things off the list yeah i get that very much but it, it, it's um no, no, I'm not, believe me, I'm not trying to argue with you on that. <laughs> I, I want to believe in it, man. I want to feel uh, hopeful about uh, the whittling down of the list of things that need to be done. But it's also, you know, for every one thing you take off the list, it, you, people, what happens I see a, a lot of times is like a paralysis of of action. Because it's it seems so dire. We seem so irrevocably fucked that the the concept of it getting out of it. It's like, well, whatever. What can I do? I'm just going to Burning Man, and you know, good good luck, fuckers. But that's that's not um, that's not a very good solution either. No, uh, it's
2: like a sure way of like dying.
1: But there's a there's something that I noticed. I used to think because no one would really listen. I had a company that uh, I converted diesel engines to run on waste cooking oil, and people weren't really interested in hearing some long-haired dude talk about you know, save the planet, use sustainable things, use waste, use garbage, why not? Uh, But when I started talking about the economics of it, suddenly people listened, and I was able to find customers that were more interested in economics rather than environment. But tethering economics to an environmental cause, it's the economics that often drive the economic disaster that we're in. I mean, uh, case in point, the, uh, the Salton Sea, mm-hmm. uh, I would argue that economics and agriculture are what made this um, no longer a thing. It certainly made it a thing in the first place, made the Salton Sea possible this time around. You know, by a mistake, economics drove the moving of the, the damming of the Colorado River that caused it in the first place, but diverting that water elsewhere based on an economic need has created this giant problem. Or maybe you can explain that a little better. But mm-hmm. I, I think anytime you tether the economy to an environmental cause, it's a it's a double edged sword. You know, it's mm-hmm. not like it's you're going to fix it just by making sure that the the economics bite you in the ass.
2: No, of course that's not the only solution, right? right. I mean, it's like. Uh, but but one one thing I want to say about that is like, we work a lot with communities that are close to the land. Farmers, and we work a lot with like big industrial farmers. And a lot of people in the cities that are more environmentally minded, like ourselves, like we come from a like green party, like Greenpeace background, whatever. Not green, yeah, whatever. I mean, like, like, like our whole basic, um how you call it, like prejudice or wa- value system is coming from. That upbringing of mm-hmm. being more like a liberal person from the city, and so what I see is that a lot of people think that farmers actually don't care. They do this big, um, you want some here? They do this this. Oh, there like this big um, big industrial guys, and they don't know what. And but. But what's very interesting, like if you go down there and talk to the farmers, um, and, and I don't talk about like this mega corporations, right? But what I talk, to, uh, to talk about is like the guy who has like 500 or 1,000 acres or something like that and tries to, to keep his family alive. If you talk to them, most of them... That's that's the sound of Bombay Beach, actually. It's yeah, it like, is. There's, there's two two very distinct sounds, and oh no, three distinct sounds yeah. in Bombay Beach. Uh, one is chihuahuas, chihuahuas uh, that are going crazy like the whole time. That's what we just heard. The other is a train passing by, and then the third thing. And but that is because my house is basically in the slum of Bombay <laughs> Beach. It's like my neighbors, and uh, I think the most used term. Uh, in my neighborhood is bitch or fucking bitch and so that is that is like sorry so you have to beep it out i'm no, sorry no, that's no, I'm not, not me that saying it it's no, like no. my neighbors
1: that's what a sweet siren song a, a, a low rumbling train and a distant whistle on the low end and then these pitched high notes of uh, kind of cracked out screaming at somebody in a right equally kind of cracky type of dog yipping at everybody (laughs) yeah it's beautiful i mean it's like really
2: yeah you don't get that in the city right because you have like all the car traffic and stuff and here it's like all the sounds are very distinct so you know oh now the train is coming by and then you hear like all this birds, chip 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 and then suddenly you have like this dog and then you're like (laughs) it's it's beautiful you know it's like come (laughs)
1: to bombay beach yeah (laughs) that's on our postcard (laughs) right (laughs) bitch get down here yeah bitch bitch yeah yeah,
2: and yeah (laughs) anyway uh, um, so you know,
1: so, <laughs> so we are talking about farmers and and their uh, that they're of course they're not not considered or not considering the environment. They are considering their environment. Oh, they're yeah. considering their families. They're considering right,
2: families. yeah, because they they very often um, come from the one thing that they say, like the most important for us is to be good stewards of our land and to keep the farm for our next generation mm-hmm. and. Sometimes you say, well, that might be like a kind of like advertisement stuff and like that is what you're supposed to say. But on the other hand, a lot of the farmers that we have known in Western countries, Germany, the United States, um, Brazil, and so on and so forth, if they wouldn't be thinking along this line and really meaning it, um, they could just sell their land and become instant millionaires and right. live the rest of their life in, on a beautiful beach or island or whatever. Right. So, for example, I'm working with a, with a rancher up in the Rocky Mountains and he is in this area that is um, where a lot of like rich people from the cities put their mansions up and have their little ranch, you know, like right. three horses, and they, and they call it a ranch to save taxes because then it's an agricultural thing, right. and and this guy, I mean, if he would sell some of his few thousand acres of land up there, he could be a millionaire. He gets by on much less. He's like sixty-five, seventy years old, still sits on his horse, which is a tough job. I mean, like making. Like like tending to fences and stuff yeah. like that. It's yeah, like a hard life. Very hard. You know, and he could just like sell the stuff, but he mm-hmm. keeps it. He wants to preserve it. And. Um, and and I think that that is what our project tries to do compared to. A lot of a lot of other documentary projects. Our Landrush project really works closely with the farming communities and tries to get in those very different views and tries to set the table that you can sit together and really listen into somebody's arguments and where they're coming from because very often especially in agriculture it's like the farmers hate the environmentalists and the environmentalists hate like the industrial complex and then they hate the politicians altogether and stuff like that and so very often you have the feeling that there is not there's talk about each other but not with each other and so what we are trying to do sometimes is like building these little bridges and really like letting an argument sink in and really like trying to understand the people so that's why we spend like like sometimes it's more like a kind of like visual anthropology what we do we spend Hmm. like much more time than a normal um, journalist for like a magazine or or a radio station or something spends In one location, and we return many, many times to see the change. Also, for example, like my wife, right after this year, she will go back to Iowa uh, to work with two uh, farm families that she have been working on since 2013. So the last six years, on and off, she visits them and spends like, 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 becomes part of their Mm lives. We run out to bring. We cook lunch for them mm-hmm. when they are in the harvest, and then we bring it out to the people on the field. We we help them deliver little pigs, whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. we become part of like especially Frauke's working like that. I like when you look at the two different ways both of us are working on the Land Rush project. Frauke very often gets like really intimate with. Um, With the families and really becomes part of that and i tend to do more of this like grand road movies like following the whole colorado river down and then like having those those little vignettes of different stakeholders people living with them also but she is even more she's even more intimate with like one family spending like half a year there and stuff wow
1: i think that's incredibly important in any if you ever hope to argue with anyone if you ever hope to like put a position forward that you claim is your position uh, my father told me this as a kid he's like look if you you need to understand your opponent <laughs> if you want to argue with someone you better know what it is that they think you'll either a prove yourself you'll bolster your own argument or you'll figure out that you're wrong and if you show up to an argument convinced that you're right without understanding what the other person actually thinks you're wasting everyone's time right and then it's no longer it's an argument and not a discussion so i think your your attempt to show the whole sides all the sides the whole argument the whole position i think is a very valuable valuable thing to do so in in keeping with that how is that project working here on the salton sea what's your is it part of the land rush yeah operation so tell me tell me what's going on here
2: so basically, I came here, I was basically flushed down with the Colorado River, mm-hmm. right? Because the Salton Sea is the end of the Colorado now. That's where it ends. It doesn't end here naturally. I mean, it used to over the time, right. it flushed here every now and then because it carries so much sediments that it blocked its own way. And so sometimes it like emptied into the Delta, sometimes it emptied into this land here but since uh, all the big dams were built in the United States um, the sediments are not moving anymore Mm -hmm. yeah at least not as much as they used to Um, and uh, the farmers down here in the Imperial Valley have some of the oldest water rights in the American West Um, and on the Colorado and they own it's uh, just a few hundred families they basically own the water rights to about 22, 23% of all the water that flows down the Colorado. And so no water anymore, not because of them, but because of all the users of Colorado River water. So Colorado hasn't reached its delta since the late 80s. And so destroyed this big ecosystem. Um, uh, There's another U-Haul. We have like a lot of traffic going on now. (laughs) Um, because uh, of the Biennale, yeah. so normally it's a quiet place, and now it seems like being like in the middle of a, a movie of a movie. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so so the um, so the Colorado hasn't reached its delta since the late nineteen eighties, and it destroyed one of the most diverse ecosystems there. Um, the largest amount of that water, like the largest share of that water, is imported right into the Imperial Valley, where all the winter vegetables for the United States are basically grown. So if you eat salad and broccoli and any fresh product in January or for your Christmas dinner, then you're eating Colorado River water. And so what happened in 1905 is they tried to irrigate this desert here, which is super fertile because it had all the sediments from the colorado over hundreds and thousands of years like s- sitting here so it's very fertile and so they, they they wanted to irrigate it and they didn't do the construction right and the engineering right and so um, a big flood came on the colorado river and basically f- ran down the, the levees and and just like levees 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 whatever yes, yes. Um, and 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 flushed the Colorado River, flushed into this low-laying land that is the second lowest place in the United States, uh, just like the Death Valley, it's like a depression under, um, so it's consider- like about like 220 feet, 240 feet under sea level. And started flushing this, and as uh, say, the largest lake of California was born. Mm-hmm. It's like considerably larger than Lake Tahoe. Um, and normally it would have dried up within a few years because it's like super hot here it, if no water flows in evaporation rates are so big that um, that a million, more than a million acre feet of water is evaporating every year and so um, normally it would have just be gone but because those farmers have this long water rights they irrigate their fields and whatever gets left over from that field, whatever the plants are not using for growth just flows in uh, to the lake which is basically an agricultural thump at the end of the system, of the plumbing system, Colorado River Mm -hmm. and so all the consequences, all the poison, all the fertilizer, everything collects here. And it's basically, I I often compare it to like this crazy sorcerer who has this experiment and boils down in his little lab, boils down stuff and adds a little bit, like adds a little water, adds a little bit of liquids, adds a little bit of like metals and gold and stuff and tries to do this experiment like this alchemist who tries to create gold or something and then ends up with something else and and so basically what we're seeing here is like a life sorcerer's apprentice kind of like like experiment in the middle of the desert with the largest lake of California and so over the years all the stuff stayed behind even when you add fresh water with a little bit of salt it became so salty through this evaporation and this concentration Mm -hmm. that by now it's like nearly as twice as salty as the ocean and for a long time it was this ecosystem on steroids right so it's like they put in fish they put in like different plants and whatever and 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 all this fertilizer connected there and so it's hot have a lot of fertilizer have a lot of it's very small width of of creatures and and living plants and stuff that were really specifically tuned to this place. And basically like like if you are like one of those like muscle guys like like on steroids, uh, your muscles grow really fast and you are um, like the hyperbole but it kills you. And so that is what happens at the Salton Sea. So basically like it, it was one of the most amazing fishing areas for many years. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it was so productive and so full of life that it constantly changed. But then with that, it created all that life forms that created either poison or in their decay when they died, created like bubbles of like unbreathable or or like like oxygen um, depleted. Space that other creatures then died. So you had like this millions of fish die off, or mm-hmm. you had like avian flu or avian botulism or whatever that killed like hundreds of thousands of birds. And so it became like this it changed from this pristine uh, vision of a future into this nightmarish, apocalyptic, uh, dystopian place. Yeah. And but it is a changing and living ecosystem, and that is also something that's that's important here. And so that is that is what I'm what I'm looking at. So what I'm what I'm interested in here, and why I came here, is we 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 are talking now about this new time, the Anthropocene, like a mm-hmm. like a new epoch, basically. That it's in like like where the humans became the most uh, the strongest force of changing nature. Um, and, and, the, and the salt and sea is one of the strongest examples for that. We created something by accident, by not knowing, but by, be, by being powerful, but not knowing what we do, like the sorcerer's apprentice. We created something and now we are ending with that.
0: They stew in hands, they hold the lovers' waves to stand on.
2: Now, basically, what what do you do with that when there is less water from the Colorado River when that is what is basically its lifeline, like dripping in like syringe Colorado River right. water to keep this ecosystem here alive? But what happens now is that the Colorado River goes down? And so, and so the funny thing of that is that basically you can either to to reduce the worst impact of that what they're talking now is plowing the sea the, the, the beaches to, to stop the dust from blowing and making little like pond ecosystems and stuff like that so this landscape that is already so designed and especially like with all the big farm fields in the mm-hmm. in the south of here like in the Imperial Valley that's like a completely man-made landscape Very I mean much. it's a big hundred mile factory yeah. and so That now extends north. So, like this force of man into mankind, into nature, is just like now becoming more and more obvious in the lake that we created by accident. And the funny thing now is that the only real sensible thing to keep the thing from becoming a complete disaster for the local communities here, for the birds, for the fish, stuff would be. To dig a canal and bring in more water, so do more geoengineering right. to so, to, solve, to solve the geoengineering problem that right. we created in the first place, yeah. and and so that that is why what what makes it like extremely interesting for a documentary yeah. guy like me.
1: And and add into it, if if the Sorcerer's Apprentice is what created the Salton Sea, then at this point the Bombay Beach Biennale is like the Sorcerer Apprentice's weird horny neighbor showed up with some like with some art projects and some you know strange overtones of sexuality and fun and uh bacchanalian uh play Mm -hmm. so and so you've got this rich landscape of you know your interest in environmental degradation and possible hopeful solution crafting and your clear love and appreciation of art and the bizarre and uh Hey, what a great place for you to land. I mean, did, yeah. did you ever, like, I mean, I can't, I don't know what it's like in Germany. I've never been to Germany, but like, if someone had told you as a child, hey, Uva, I got an idea for your future.
2: <laughs> great.
1: <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? I just, even describing this to your friends and family back home, what's that like to tell them about this? Like, do they... Do they think you're crazy, or do they think like, "Wow, you've really stumbled into some something interesting"? What what's the what's the take on it back home for you?
2: I think both a little bit of both. So the interesting thing is that I always used to be a traveler, so my family moved a lot from place to place, mm. and so I don't really have a home like many people have, like this hometown or something where they mm. really grow up. I don't have that, and so um, I mean, I studied in one place, I went to school to another, but it's it never I never had a kind of like home where I belong to um I mean I built those homes by right. friends and family and loved ones but um but I never felt that i'm i i i I don't have that and when I came here um I first didn't like the place at all. I mean, I just drove in, took a few pictures, like so many do, didn't even get out of my car because I thought, oh God, that looks like, oh, those people might rob me. I mean, that is like, really like if you, and now it changed so much. I mean, through the Biennale and all the artists coming in, it cleaned up a lot, but four or five years ago, it looked like a bad Bad. thing from like, from like, uh, like, uh, actually from like a a game, like, uh, like, uh, Grand Theft Auto or <laughs> right. which is, this place is in Grand Theft Auto, right? And so you have to, you have like this mass lab or something like that. Oh. And, and, and that is what is the reality of the place, but then it's it's not dangerous at all. Yeah. Um, and then on my second visit, I still wasn't really like liking it, but I stopped, I, I was thirsty, and I stopped at the bar at the end of town called Skien, and I walked in there and looked a little bit like from outside. It looks a little shady, you know. It's like this. I mean, it's it's not it doesn't even have like real windows from the outside. It's just like uh, it's just ugly. And but then you walk inside and suddenly you feel like walking into somebody's living room. And. The people that were there that evening just like were totally welcoming and warm and just like say hey come sit down blah blah and so we started talking and i had like a beer and then i decided okay let's try the food here and uh, i had a burger it was okay it was good um and then uh i i said like oh guys i have to leave and they oh no drink another beer and i said no i i um i i I'm sorry, I can maybe drink a Coke, but I cannot drink. I would love to have another beer, but I need to find a place to stay in a hotel. And then there's one woman here, Sonia. we call her the Queen of Bombay Beach because she owns so many places. And she's there, said, like, hey, um, you don't have to leave. You can can stay here. We have places to stay. (laughs) Here? (laughs) It's like, (laughs) what, what, in your home? No, 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 no. I have have places to stay that I rent out to, to people. I was like, really? I mean, that's like... Is this trailers there or what? And then and then suddenly I found this other part of Bombay Beach, right? Yeah. So I stayed like this one night, and uh, then I never left. Hmm. So before I stayed like in motels down in the Imperial Valley and stuff, but then, I mean, you can stay here for $25, $30, do- uh, $30 a night.
0: Hmm.
2: You have a wonderful community of people.
1: Yeah,
2: um, You have an amazing bar where at one evening you have like two guys sitting there that one of them is like talking to his beer and every now and then has a light moment and talks to you directly. And the other is just like crunched over like you would see in a bad like Western movie or something like that. And then at other days suddenly the door opens, and I don't know five top models uh, and a movie crew walks in and right. then you and, or like a bunch of locals and you have a party that goes on till like three o'clock in the morning right. and so that is something like the social life and that is what I try to explain also to 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 people back in Germany and my family and friends It's like the social life that I have here is so much more rich than the one that i have in the city back at home in hamburg because it seems to be this melting pot where everybody comes together and you basically have to talk to people right i mean yeah. you cannot not talk to people right and and there are amazing people in hamburg and of course like the long built friendships that i have i don't have anything like that here like People I, I've gone to school with, right? Sure. That's different in the sure. in the in the level of intimacy. Maybe we built that here over time, but I mean, the the many people I meet here, this place tends to draw in a lot of interesting people. So you get people who really want to work on something, who who are strange wanderers that are also stranded here, or like see an opportunity here to create something. Mm-hmm. And that is not only the people from the Biennale.
1: No, very much not. Yeah. I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree. <laughs> and so the
2: Biennale is like an added benefit to all of that and and maybe stipulates it. And then what I looking looking at this crazy art fest that you explained, like this rowdy neighbour that mm-hmm. that comes in. Um What's really fascinating here is the difference between what all the things that the Biennale is is instigating, is that the right word? Or like like starting to 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 change with all the people coming in, like the two months before the biennale and like the time after the biennale. You have like all these hard working people. I mean everybody here works really really hard and you don't think that when you just go to the ski and and you meet the people there like hanging out yeah so they have this great social life but on the other hand this place also from the outside you don't see it it Mm -hmm. seems like this lost in time little thing but then beneath the surface everybody's like moving shit
1: and moving yeah right working hard man that's been the theme for sure
2: (laughs) and 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 so much stuff happens. And then you have like this one weekend where this big carnival comes into town. And that can be bizarre and wonderful, and it can be shitty at times. Um, When when a U-Haul is like coming right down the road and interrupting the interview. Um, No, but when... um, you, you you have so much um, things that then put this layer on top of that and often covers the real interesting things that are happening here. Yeah. Sometimes it's like too much of a party crowd, and you have the feeling like I had the feeling of the last weekend, this Biennale. It's a, I have been at all of them by chance, by by accident, I stumbled into the Biennale. And hello, doggy. Um while the first ones you had little interaction of absurdity and decadence into a bizarre backdrop. What I had the feeling of like last year and is increasingly this year is that this decadence takes over and and becomes the main thing. Mm. And like you have like those beautiful people in their crazy like Burning Man dresses walking around. And I love a good party and that's that's fine but it feels maybe a little bit ungenuine and mm. and like over the top not necessarily in a good way. And so I think what what do you really and, and and then there is like amazing stuff going on at right. the weekend. I mean it's like wonderful. So it's 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 there's a lot of wonderful things, but then it's sometimes like overflown by yeah. by the cheap event culture and too much bling 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 instead of real art.
1: It's becoming it's, like the town, I think. Because that's what this place has always been since they started putting people here it's always been a playground there's always been some cheap element i mean look at these houses They're, they that threw all the cheapest possible manufactured shit at it and it looked at the time like this bling 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 i don't know that the biennale is any all that much different than that i mean at, at a time there was a time when like the beach boys and frank sinatra were over the top and crazy party you know we think of it now as like this quaint quaint sort of uh, old-timey music but I mean that was that was as wild as it got right you know and this you know fishermen and hunters and all that stuff going on ever has it been a playground since they've introduced this species into the area right so I I don't know that I mean to your point I understand that Mm. it, it can be annoying you know and they're I like a good night's sleep more than a party, so I can oh no i don't i don't i don't
2: I don't say that I mean there are people in town who are like complaining about the noise i don't i know it's you, not, I know you it's, don't. not I don't. it's not that it's not not at all it's just that that um I think if you intervene as an artist in a community, you have to do so consciously Very. and and be Conscious of what you do, and sometimes you can add to it. And a lot, the Biennale is adding a lot of things, a lot of opportunities. Mm-hmm. People's yards are cleaner, right? I mean, it's like if you see the difference from year one or year zero of the Biennale four years ago and now, it's I mean, special. this town is so much nicer, people see mm-hmm. more opportunities. Um, a lot of, like, I heard the crime rate has gone down and things like that from locals, right? From people who live here for a long time. And so, but then there are people who complain. So I think there's a lot of good things there. Um, And then sometimes there are little moments when you feel like, hey, I just hope that it's not losing the community it's made
1: for. Right. Yeah, no, I... I I can appreciate that. I've been here almost six weeks, five, six weeks. um, And I know all the neighbors that live around Tao's place, uh, one of the organizers. And, you know, back home where we were living in the North Bay area of San Francisco, I didn't know all my neighbors, you know, (laughs) I'm sure you know that fucking bitch's name <laughs> when they when they yell well, at that. Well,
2: she's, she's a fucking bitch. <laughs> no, I mean it's like it's like I oh, know, yeah. right? But you know, but you know but the people. Of you are course, familiar isn't? with that fucking bitch yeah, in a course. way
1: that you wouldn't necessarily be in Hamburg. You yep. know that, it, and that's there's a charm in that that um, you know a, a visitor showing up here for a giant party doesn't know to smile and wave at that fucking bitch. Right? You know, they're, I gotta quit saying that, but you know what I mean. Like the, <laughs> yeah. That's the last time I'm saying that. Okay. But that, that you are in a town. I kept on hearing people say, oh, God, it's so crazy they do this in an abandoned town. This is not an abandoned town. Our, our, the neighbors near Tao, they're children that live there. They go to school. There's like little guys that just, this is their home. Mm-hmm. It's not abandoned. Right. I hear people say this is a post apocalyptic landscape. It's no. it's current apocalyptic. There's still people that live here and right. that depend on this place. And, you know, there's a church here and there there is a community that wants to just kind of, exist and i think there are a lot of people like you who feel the same they don't necessarily have a place to miss they don't have a home necessarily and this is it this is the stand-in for home i mean slab city might be the most extreme version of that but Mm -hmm. this is a a softer landing for folks that feel maybe alienated or outside of their homes and so
2: well it's like it's 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 like it gives it gives me the opportunity to be here and really have the second office right so it's Mm -hmm. like like in 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 Hamburg we have you, you can have a grey sky for like six weeks straight. You don't see a blue sky at all. And and so like now for, for me what's beautiful is that I can come here and at the one time one hand really deeply work on the issues that I'm interested in and and, and work with. Work with a community and build a neighborhood and a home basically. And um and just do my normal office stuff that I have to do. Just the difference is I'm sitting like in my in my socks or bare feet uh, on my terrace looking into the desert instead of like looking in, onto the next building right. And it just it's just so liberating and peaceful for me. It really helps me think and process and yeah, and that's beautiful.
1: You're one of the tanner Germans I've ever met
2: oh really yeah. yeah I used to be I'm, I'm a very very pale person but I, normally I never grow a tan yeah um,
1: down here you're gonna get a tan that's right. just part of the deal right part of the deal
2: yeah and I normally like I always like when before I always got like if I if, if I was too much in the sun i just get red
1: yeah and then it burning. peels
2: off and then I'm white again yeah. like white white <laughs> you know and so it's Baby but skin. but but here it seems to to be more natural yeah so so yeah, yeah. i look better here than i do, <laughs> do when i live in the
1: Island. desert does make you sexy
2: exactly well until you get this this lizard skin right, right? and then so you like age stronger but, yeah yeah i'll, I'll be like a, a
1: wallet at some point so uh, I'll, before we because i know you've got things to do i've got I've got to get running but i want to talk to you i mean this the documentary, the longer form documentary that you're working on, I can't, I don't know much about the documentary process other than I've got these little episodes that I put together with the people that I just, I genuinely like fall in love with the people that I meet on this journey uh, we, my wife and I've just made these incredible friends that we're so grateful to have. And these little, it's sort of like a documentary, what we're doing, but we're just it's a brief flash in the pan and then it's over. You've been working on this for like the and Sea documentary for how long? Five years, four years, four years, yeah, what's the end game there where do you where are you trying to land on that? I don't know, great answer,
2: yeah, so it's like like that is how my wife and i we are really good in starting new projects because we can become fascinated by something and doing research and then then we start it, but <sighs> It's so difficult to leave it behind because we are always interested in this long development of things so mm-hmm. we tend to return to the same places again and again and um so what what we are doing with our project uh it's called the land rush project um is that we we build kind of like a bridge between journalism uh, magazine journalism where for example, we have a, mag- a story in, in a magazine like Geo or Spiegel or something like that. Like, where the great thing is, you reach m- a million people, um, but you have to somehow be like like the role of a journalist in in that kind of thing is like to be a translator between the experts who know everything. And the people who don't know anything about it all, very little. Mm -hmm. And so basically we're always building like connections like the translator translates one thing to the other. In doing so, necessarily you have to reduce your what what you're saying to an understandable level and make a story out of it that you that 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 is a cohesive argument, stuff like that. And tells the most important point about the and Sea or the Colorado River or water rights or whatever. The good thing is you, you reach so many people, but you lose a lot of the complexity of the topic. So what we're always doing is we do a magazine piece or a few magazine pieces, a series of magazine pieces about one part of the project. And then we also do a larger web documentary from it where on top of the written word and the photos, you also would get like interview with the stakeholders and different people. And then the next step is that so we have our own iPad app where you get deeper instead of like, let's say a normal magazine story takes you 15 to 20 minutes to read through. Um, the the app just take about 30 to 40 minutes per chapter. And um, The web documentary can be anything from 15 to 30 minutes to go through, but then, what we discovered in the last few years, more and more, is like more this like working with like fragmented narrative and spaces. Mm -hmm. So we built installations that have multiple screens at the same time, and um, and so that is more like sitting down with the stakeholders at a table. We don't have to edit down an interview, to the best three sentences. We right. really have a deep um, people who are visiting that really build their own documentary by visiting a multi-channel installation work, and that is what we really love to do. But we don't have this end game thing of it. It's like we we don't know what what we will do with it before we start. It's like it's like a a never-ending process of of like documenting, researching uh, being on the ground um, uh, editing the thing, putting it to spaces putting it to magazines and then keep keep going so it's like a evolving process and so I cannot tell you where I will be in like five years. What we're doing right now here is we build a campus on our property, I just built a cinema that will that on the one hand is good to do this multi-screen installations but on the other hand will be a place for teaching photography and filmmaking and storytelling and stuff like that. So um, it's like, yeah, it's like I have no idea where we go. We just like keep going.
1: Well, you're certainly making your point that hard work is a theme here in Bombay Beach because that is a shitload of work that yeah. you just described to me. I mean, that is an absolute enormous workload to, and to produce all that and gather all that and share it with everyone and I I feel incredibly grateful to know you and to witness what it is that you're doing and to be uh, in any way in that orbit feels like a privilege so thank thank you you for for having me over here is there a link or something that you want to give anybody right now if they were wanting to check something out I'll put things up on the website that people can can find you but is there anything
2: yeah just check out like landrushproject.com great and that's that's one of them then you could check out another project we've been involved in it's like worldofmatter.net
1: world of matter
2: yeah worldofmatter.net it's okay. another larger thing um that speaks more to the art and research yeah. community and so it's like yeah it's I mean it's like trying to do things and i mean what what it is is you say it's a lot of work yes it is but it's also a lot of fun and yeah. a lot of learning So I'm really, um, I'm. We are very, very fortunate that we can be this constant or a permanent students of life, and 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 go around and ask like, like you do now. Like, like you you can you can meet people, and and we do that all, all the time. I mean, I I've been able to go to like a genetics professor and ask. As many dumb questions as I want, because what a gift. The, right, what I mean a it's gift. like it's like wonderful yes. and and gets tra- sorry, I didn't understand that point. I mean, you don't even get that as a student, And when right. little camera allows me, yeah, like into that, yes. And I can use the camera as a kind of like a sense maker to actually like figuring out what I'm what actually I'm doing there. Yeah. so I'm not very conceptual in the work that I'm doing. That that's what when you ask about the end game, I don't know. But walking it is actually the process. And, that, and something comes out of it all the time. And yeah. it always makes me wiser. And the best thing that can happen in a project is that I learned that I was completely wrong when I started it.
1: Amen to that. Well, Uwe, thank you so much, man. I, I, I feel, like I said, I'm just grateful. And uh, if there's any way I can help, I want to be involved
2: cool thank you so much for coming around and like giving me the opportunity to to uh, talk about our little project here and um yeah guys come to bombay beach visit That's right. there's always a hot tea here for you yeah. uh, or cold uh, yogurt and uh yeah come come visit
1: we'll see you at the ski inn yeah <laughs> <laughs> we do yeah. thanks a thank you